Here, I've got four questions in my hands. And uh, the first question, it says, it is a true story. I, I, I found, I got this from a newspaper. Now, I'm reading out a question to you. There was a Buddhist monk who meditated his whole life, and he, in turn, emptied out all his uh, emotions, it says. However, when he was young, his relationship with his mom was very close, and because of his meditation, he no longer feels anything for his mom. But he, uh, but he, had, no, oh, I can't read. But he and his mom were very depressed, and thus the monk chose to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist was shocked that a monk would go and see her, but she agreed to help him. This is the part that, I, that shocked me, she did some research and wrote that meditation is beneficial, but also unbeneficial in that it can cause depression and distance yourself from your loved ones and thus hurting them. To answer these questions, what you are saying, or what you, the information you got from the newspaper is that the monk meditated for a long time and empty out all his mind <laughs> empty out his mind and empty out, empty out all his emotions empty out when you meditate it does not mean that you meditate all the time and you are you were successful in arriving in the emptiness of all things when you are in meditation um, but it does not mean that you can you empty out your compassion it does not mean that you empty out your responsibility. It does not mean that you empty out your filial piety to your mom. You still have to render your compassion, your filial piety to your mom. When your mom is sick, you can't say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to attach to my mom. I'm going to desert my mom. You call that meditation? Meditation is not to get rid of all is not to get rid of all your compassion and your kindness. The more you meditate, the more you have non-attachment, the more compassion you have, the more responsibility you have, the more um, feeling you have for, for sentient beings who's going to be hurt. You want to save them uh, because you become a Buddhist Atwa. It's just the opposite. So I don't know if you are... Who is that monk who who claim himself to be uh, a successful meditator and who at the same time desert his mom and, and, and went to see a psychiatrist. It, it's, it, it shocks only, not only you, it also shocked me. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why such a, a, a monk would be, would be doing that. Um, if you're a good meditator, you, you would still, remember the Diamond Sutra says, no attachment, but you still should have that mind, that mind of compassion. As a matter of fact, when the monk, a monk and a nun, 
if they encounter someone or their friend who is sick and who is dying, if they desert them, they're going to break a precept. The precept in, 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 in the precept manual says that you cannot desert, forsake um, someone who is dying or who, is, who needs care. You really have to care for them. Not just your mom. You care not just for all your own mom, for all sentient beings who are suffering. Not just your... So, if he's your mom, the more you should care. Because, you're, because other, than, other than compassion, you still have that filial piety that you should re really be fulfilling. So I don't think that monk has been, uh, become successful in his meditation if he's keep on uh, you know, uh, forgetting about his mom and not feeling, uh, fulfilling his, his filial uh, piety uh, towards his mom. And uh, uh, meditation sometimes uh, uh, is unbeneficial uh, because it may cause depression to your loved ones. That's not true. You may be hurting them, no. Meditation will help you to become more compassionate to your loved ones. Compassionate in such a way that is not emotionally attached. You don't become emotional. In, you, you see the difference between being compassionate and being emotional? Being emotional is, without analysis, you just attach to that person blindfoldedly. You, you, uh, you fell in love with him or her and you don't care for others. But that emotion is, emotion is, it, it's, um, what should I say? Emotion is not from reasoning. Emotional is from sentiments, from feelings. Could be one-sided feelings. But compassion is unconditional and is so grand and so broad that it has no discrimination whatsoever. So emotional, in a certain sense, is bad because it's one-sided, it's discriminative, but compassion is not. So don't try to be emotional, try to be compassionate. So, I don't know whether you get that piece of information, it says this true story from a newspaper. Um, I don't know where you get this from. Um, certainly, you must not forsake your mom. That's against the precept of a monk or a nun. You must be kind to your own mom. You must be kind not just to your own mom, to all sentient beings who are suffering. Okay, since, second question, since all the souls are being reincarnated so many times, where do new souls come from? You still have the concept of new souls. When you're talking about new souls, that means there's no such soul. All of a sudden, it got created out of its own. How can that happen? Everything is created out of causality. All things, all causes put together that give a rise, give rise to something being created. It itself is not self-created. Self so how can we say new souls be created? Yeah, are you talking about a, a first cause? A first soul being created? There's no such thing. So, we reincarnate. Where do new souls come from? Souls just reincarnate. 
There's no such thing as a new one. New one, there's no such, there's no, no such being, then a new one is created. That is a temporal concept. There's no such baby, and because of all these causes put together, a baby is born. Now that's, in the temporal world, it's like that. When we see a baby is born, we say a new baby is born, but that is not new. Many causes put together to give rise to the birth of that baby. That baby is an old soul reincarnated, not a new baby born. It does not mean that there's no such soul. It's a, a, a new baby born, therefore a new soul is born. No. Yes? Rooted in four false notions, the questioner may be asking, how is it that there were only so many people a thousand years ago, so many more people now? Mm-hmm. Oh, how come there's too many uh, more people now? How do we know more or less? Because sentient beings include many, many beings, not just being of this world. They're being in other worlds too. Are you thinking of just this world? We are living in this Saha world, but there are millions of other world, millions of other sentient beings reincarnating all the time. So we can get a number. We can say, oh, because of the increase in population, Oh, how can there be an increase in population if we have a fixed certain amount of people? No, there are other worlds that reincarnate in here. There's also, when, 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 when the devas, when, when, when beings in, in heavens reincarnate, they come back to the Sahar world. And sometimes we go to the heavens too. There, there, are, there are heavens, there's also the purgatory. There's also the hell victims. There's so many. In the six paths of reincarnations, there's so many locations for sentient beings to, to habitate, to, to live together. So, uh, it's not that just a new number. Um, we, have, we increase more and more in population. It's because sometimes there's a, re a reduction in population because of wars. First World War, Second World War, killed millions of people does that mean that the number reduced they could reincarnate in other in, reincarnate as bacteria as germs as worms as insects and how how can we identify not even not even science can identify the total number of living beings in this world there's so many worms germs insects they reincarnate too and how do we know the number and what's the point of knowing that number? And I remember there was many years uh, ago there was a group of um, people from uh, from the Catholic from the Christian Church. About more than a hundred of them, they come to to my uh, meditation class, and they keep on asking challenging questions. And one of them says, "What is the total number of living beings? The total number of living beings? I say the total number of living beings is." 260,000 billion trillions and that's the number <laughs> so what that number means and he say can you prove that number and I said can you disprove it <laughs> so I can utter any number what does that number mean to you the number is meaningless Everything is fleeting, even number. Number is changing. There's no one fixed number. In this, in this moment right now, 
Life change. One being die, another being, being born. Uh, so death is the beginning of life, and life comes to death. Life and death, we call it. We are living in this Sahara world of life and death. And yet we only experience it and we don't recognize it. If we recognize, if we, if, if we start to study life and death, we're on our way to spirituality. We want to find out why people, why we die? Where did we come from? Where did we go after death? How can, we, how can I get away from life and death? How can I get away from suffering? What makes me suffer? What are the causes of suffering? What are the remedies for these causes? That's what the Buddhist teachings are about. The Four Noble Truth. Suffering, causes of suffering, cessation of suffering, method to end suffering. The Four Noble Truth. The Buddha introduced in the Hinayana school, Theravada school, this very simple but very subtle, very deep, very profound meaning of life. Life is marked by suffering. We all know that. Suffering arising from life and death, from wars, from earthquake, from famine, from starvation, from epidemic diseases, from suffering arising from living with hated ones, suffering arises from departure of beloved ones, Suffering arises from insatiable desires. Suffering arising from unable to satisfy your desires. Suffering arising from many, many things. Broken homes, drunken fathers, abuse, child, children, childhood, sickness, sufferings. You name this suffering. If, if someone tells you that I don't feel suffering in this world, I'm extremely happy, then that person has a problem. If that person said, I have absolutely no suffering, and the next day he's crying, and he doesn't know, even know. There was a, when I was in Toronto, when I was just in my first year in, in the University of Toronto, I went to a, I went to a temple, and I, we had a discussion, and there was uh, that lady, um, and she said, I have, I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm very happy. I don't have any problem. I don't have suffering. And then the next, the following week, I met her, she was crying because her daughter disappeared because she couldn't do work well in school and um, it just disappeared. And the police is still looking for her. And she's crying and crying and I'm, I almost said, didn't you tell me that life is not suffering? If I say that, you're going to punch me in the face. <laughs> So, so uh, you say life is no suffering. So you say, um, that's what the Buddha said, the vulnerable truth causes suffering, causes of suffering, trying to find out why we suffer. And the Buddha said there's a way to stop suffering, cessation of suffering. Cessation of suffering, when the suffering stops, nirvana would stop it. When you were fully enlightened, you go beyond suffering. No more living in the Sahara world. You are in that state of, of, in that state, what we call nirvana. And even that nirvana is not a location. It's not a location we're sitting in, we call it nirvana. It is something that 
for the sake of naming it we call it nirvana it is a state that where no more suffering no more life and death you are beyond that how do we call it you may call it God you may call it some some call it heaven but heaven is not ultimate because heaven people still have to reincarnate after millions of years but you have to go to that very supreme and what do we call it the Buddha called it many names but it does not matter how you call it that's something that no more suffering exists and some, some people call it eternal bliss Tathagata Bodhi mind, true mind Nirvana Parinirvana it does not matter it's that, that's what we're looking for we want to get away from suffering how do we get away from suffering? is it sufficient that the Buddha, the Buddha and the Buddhist give us a lift with his hand and they will, will be out of suffering? some people will say if God help me I will be out of suffering God if Buddha help me I will be out of suffering if Buddha gives me a lift I will be out of suffering you are cheating yourself why? if God or Buddha can help you and release you from suffering all by himself there will be no one suffering because God is supposed to be the kindest he wouldn't have you uh, staying in the location of suffering he would have you push up, up already you don't even have to ask the only person who can help you yourself get out of suffering is you how do you get out of suffering? you practice the Buddha's teaching who already know the way the Buddha have already found a way to be out of suffering as I always use the analogy he's found a map he's found a map to get out from the ocean of life and death and we are still in that canoe everybody has that canoe we're floating in the ocean of life and death sometimes storms come sometimes tranquility of the oceans you are enjoying this leisurely tranquility for a moment and at other times storms would come you almost being swallowed up by waves and Buddha has that map where you can steer your own canoe into that eternity there's no more suffering and he introduced that map to you all in the teaching did you get a time to look at that map to study that map uh, I know that I know that when people are driving right now even sometimes I don't want to be a backseat driver and when people when, when the driver is driving and if he doesn't know the way in Hong Kong so many roads got changed it reminds me of last month's scenario there was this driver who was driving and we have a location to go to and he does not know the way and he was trying to look at this map but the map was so complicated that he's put it on the seat and he hasn't got time to look at it and we're going around and around in a circle and finally I said well why don't we stop at a point don't drive anymore and look at that map we've been turning around and around in one hour so he stopped and parked on the side of the road and he, he took from the seat and looked at the map oh yeah that's how we get it and in five minutes we get there 
So don't you have time to look at that map? Or some people say, I don't know how to look at it. I don't have time to look at it. I only have time to search for material gains. I only have time to search for wealth, reputation. I only have time to do things like sexual misconduct, stealing, lying, discrimination, killing. Um, I only have time to do those things. I don't have time to look at that map. Maybe you are the sufferer. You can continue. And um, why don't we look at that map that the Buddha showed us? Take some time. Park your car. Don't go around and around in a circle. Park that car in there and quietly, with unity of mind, look at it and analyze it. Think about it. You get there in five minutes. And if you continue driving without looking at the map, you'll never get there. Not in a day. It's so, it sounds so simple, parking your car and look at a map, but to some people it's so complicated. They don't have the patience. So, I answered this question already. So next question, if Buddhism is the study of the mind, then how can one be sure that in the process of analyzing the mind, we're not feeding its egoistic tendencies? You know, we analyze the mind, but we also practice. When we practice, we're getting rid of ego. How can we build up egoistic tendencies? We are trying to get rid of our ego in the practice. And how do we get rid of this ego? Is it just by meditation, by reading the Diamond Sutra, and we can easily get rid of this ego? The Diamond Sutra and the meditation practice is only to help us to understand it. Um, because the mind works in subtlety. In other words, the mind is very fine and subtle. Every thought is subtle. How subtle it is? Sometimes a thought comes up, you don't even know about it. A thought of killing, a thought of sexuality, of sensual thought, a, 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 a thought of uh, a, a lying, a thought of sexual misconduct. All, all this thought could be a very coarse thought. A coarse thought, that means the thought comes up, you catched it. You get a glimpse of the thought, you stopped it. You want to yell out, you want to curse. And if you're a good meditator, you know you stop, the, you stop your own cursing. You stop your own yelling and shouting, you stop that. But in most time, every thought is so subtle that it comes up, you don't even know about it. But our way is just to, how do we control our mind? We have three, we have three, um, if I can use that word, weapons. It's not a good analogy, but I can't, I can't come up with anything better. It, we, it, we have three weapons to protect our mind. The first is the maintenance of the precept. The second is the maintenance of samatha, or meditation. The third is the maintenance of wisdom. You have to use the Vinaya or the precept to be on the fourth guard, to guard your thought. In other words, you've got to have regulations. You impose regulations on your own mind first to gear your mind to the right path. You open it up a school, you don't even have regulation. We say we have these regulations first to direct our mind. 
And once we get these regulations set out, all the students observe the regulations, then we go into the, the syllabus, the course, the structure of, of, of the system, the teaching staff, um, the detail, the syllabus, the examinations, and all this. But you really get to have some regulations first before you get into an example of the school. You really have to get to the regula regulations of the school before you get into the syllabus and the detail and the teaching staff and the system of it. And what is this? What is this? Regulations. In a Buddhist teaching, you must you must maintain a good morality standard. You must be abstain. You must abstain from killing, abstain from lying, abstain from sexual misconduct, abstain from killing. There's so many things we cannot do. You you gotta have regulations to regulate your behavior first before you get into meditation and the wisdom level. But people usually overlap that. They march directly into, into meditation. Usually when we, when we practice Buddhism, we bypass the precept level and get directly into meditation and studying the sutra. That's no, no. That's not the way to do you really have to start, you have really have to get some regulations to guide your behavior here are the things i can't do i can't steal if i'm meditating and i'm still stealing lost shot lifting if i'm still cheating lying sexual misconduct what's the use of this coming to the temple every saturday to do meditation whereas you're fooling around with girlfriends with your boyfriends you are contradicting yourself the three foundations of the practice of Buddhism. What are this? Precept or morality, meditation and wisdom. The three foundations. But when you build up this foundation, which one you build first? The Vinaya. What you cannot do, what you can do. This, this is something I cannot do. I cannot kill. I cannot commit sexual misconduct. I cannot lie. I cannot steal. You, know, you impose all these regulations on your mind so that you're on the right path. You know what's the right thing to do. All this will help you be, to get away from that ego feeling. All this will eliminate your ego. Why do you kill? Why do you commit sexual misconduct? Why do you lie? It's because of the ego. But people think that imposing yourself with, with precepts would make you not as flexible. You're losing your freedom. That's just the opposite. When you're following precepts, you're more free. You're more emancipated from, from the restrictions that's imposed on you because of your bad karma.